Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. It is Brendan here with Mark. Vetgurus.com, the place to go. Show notes, information on our sponsors, which we thank very much, and also where you'll see a link to our Patreon site where you can donate a little bit of money to us. Um, That's all I'm going to say, Mark. That's all I'm going to say as far as our little promo intro. And um, have you got anything to say before we jump into our punchy episode about another top ten? I, 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 the only thing I was going to mention today, Brendan, I went, I was thinking of you. I was thinking of you, Brendan, when I went out earlier today and, um, and we do a little bit of work at, um, one of our local, um, uh, wildlife parks and they have a 15 kilogram parenti that has some, um, uh, dental disease as it happens. And, um, and, uh, I did, while examining the conscious lizard, managed to just jag one of those teeth on my finger and it bled and bled and bled. Um, and the combination of a wildlife park, a dental issue, and a lot of blood made me think of you. Oh, I don't know whether that's um, a positive thing or not, Mark. I don't know. I don't, that's a, is that a backhanded compliment or what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't pretend to understand why your face jumped into my mind. I'm just saying that's what happened. So how is the reptile? Oh, we're going to schedule an anaesthetic and we're going to clean those teeth up. Excellent. Excellent. Um, they are pretty amazing animals, those large varanids, those large lizards, Australian lizards, Mark. They can get up to a decent size, can't they? 15 kilos. That's um, three pelicans, Brendan. <clears throat> yes, on the pelican scale, that um, probably is three pelicans, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> yes. Um, though I must admit I don't particularly use the pelican scale very often in my practice, Mark. I know you use it doesn't, a lot in your practice. <laughs> um, perhaps not. Perhaps not, Mark. Um, I have a review. Well, no, I don't actually. Um, yes, I do. I have a review <laughs> of something, and that is something I used today, Mark. Well, no, I didn't. I was going to use it, but I didn't end up using it. It is a one of the things I love about you. Your decisiveness. <laughs> I'm so. I used to be so indecisive, Mark, and and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, it is called Vet Light. You know this product, I think, Mark. Do you know Vet Light? Um, it's is sort of a plastic type thermoplastic splinting and bandaging material. And I love it, Mark. One, because it's very cheap to purchase, which is always good. Two, all you need to do with Vet Light, and it comes in two sizes, I think, is pop this um, bandage or casting material in just literally hot water. Just It has to be really boiling water to, to work properly, so you, you don't just boil the kettle and then um, put it in a in a bowl and leave it there even for a few minutes because it won't soften up the vet light. So it's a, a plastic, um, thermoplastic material that you put in the boiling water and then it becomes very malleable. And it's great for doing little half casts or full casts, um, very lightweight and very tough, Mark. And um, I've used it for, for many years and um, I use it a lot in the exotics, Mark. Um, I was thinking of using it for the little bunny rabbit, a, a young bunny rabbit that um, I'd expect it was dropped and it came in. It's a little um, one that went out from a shelter place um, to a foster person and um, it was brought in by the foster carer, lame in its left foreleg mark and um, took a radiograph and it had a, a complete luxation at, um, of the carpal region. So um, what I've done for the moment is 
pop it back in under an anesthesia and I've put a little splint on there. And I was going to use a fed light, but I ended up using a little a little finger splint um, that fitted perfectly for this particular um, bunny. But um, I worry about these sort of ones, Mark. We'll see how it goes in two or three weeks. I'd like your opinion on it. Um, I, I think a lot of them we end up having to do an arthrodesis and fuse the joint um, in these pretty severe luxations. And particularly in the the um, carpus that's uh, in rabbits, that's one that we are often um, getting to the point where we um, uh, put a plate on and fuse the joint up. Um, but I know you've been using this vet light material for many years, Brendan. I know it comes in um, uh, a number of widths, and you can cut off bits, and you know, just and that's the beauty of it. For if you don't. If you're not lucky enough to have a finger splint handy, that's the perfect size. Um, it's relatively easy, and I, I say this with some confidence because um, if I can do it, just about anyone can do it. But it's relatively easy to shape um, and and uh, get that relatively precise. Um, you know the the bit that you want. The only thing I've I've always got to watch out when I use the vet light because it has that mesh. You know, it's a um, uh, an orthopedic tape that when it that hardens when it uh, gets into you know the thermoplastic thing, um, but uh, if you are a bit careless, the way that you cut it can leave like a serrated edge. You just have to pay particular attention because it's set so hard um, and it is relatively thin and light. Um, it can end up creating a bit of a sore effect, and uh, you just have to make sure those ends are, are not. And I can yes. speak from experience here, Brendan, that are not rubbing uh, me, against me, the skin anywhere. Me too, Mark. I think that a couple of tricks that I try and use that help with that is when you cut it, you make sure you cut it on the on the edge there, so you don't have those little little finger projections um, happening there. And and secondly, yeah, making sure you bandage the the limb um, underneath it or whatever whatever body part you're you're casting with it um sometimes i even um before it's fully fully dried and um and molded i mold it to the leg and then then remove it and then i'll put a little bit of an elastoplast or a bandage or a, or a padding bandage that then sticks to the um to the vet light um before reapplying it back onto the patient um but yeah i've i've certainly had that that issue mark over the years and that um, those ones where we get those pressure sores if we're not particularly careful the way we um, watch things but but the beauty of them is even even with those patients that um, need to have the cast on for a period of time you can then um, soften it or you could um, remove it um, while that patient's sedated and reapply it several times so it is reusable as well so that's uh, I like the the advantage of that as well so yeah that's my review my vet light it's called did you did you give it a score Brendan a score well it's a very solid um there's my pun um nine out of ten mark nine that is that is solid Yes, and um, I, I very much like Vet Light. So that's my review. So I think we should jump into our news, Mark, um, moving on from our, our little punchy episode that we're going to have here. And I think you wanted to take the first one, and it's going to be a really, really punchy news item, isn't it? Punchy, punchy, punchy. It's a, um, you, On this podcast, Brendan, we regularly talk about conservation. It's a little bit of a, you know, a, a favourite topic of both your and mine. Um, and um, a, a, an article came across my desk uh, a little while ago, um, which sort of caught my eye. The, 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 um, the lead um, was when conservationists kill lots and lots and lots of animals. Um, and, and, well, I mean, you know what a fan of clickbait I am. And that was a headline that um, just drew me in. Um, and it's a... Um, an article from The Atlantic um, by Emma Maris, who um, did uh, come from the US to Australia to speak to um, some conservationists in Australia about the concept of um, compassionate conservation. Um, they There's a, a, a growing, I suppose, school of thought in the conservation movement, which... Uh, which takes offence at um, the wholesale slaughter 
of um, invasive species um, that um, that there is some thought that uh, that these species might not be doing all the damage that um, they're accused of and um, and that maybe there are other ways without um, that massive um, killing of uh, species that um, that might be able to achieve the same goals. And there's some very passionate advocates for this, Brendan, some very passionate advocates. Um, and um, yes, and I look, we've talked about this off air a couple of times now, and I don't uh, I, I'm torn, Brendan. I'm ambivalent um, because, geez, if I if I could <clears throat> be a benign dictator of the world, um, I would try and set it up that no animal was um, was unable to live the full term of its natural life with safety and care. I, I would love a world like that, but I also see the huge amounts of damage that um, feral species do. I've seen those locations where feral species have been removed and native animals have bounced back. And as much as, you know, I would hope that no animal has to suffer and where the extirpation of uh, exotic species, invasive species has to occur, I insist that it's done in the the uh, most humane way possible for those animals that have to be killed. I still think that um, those of us who, the species here who is responsible for those introductions has to accept responsibility for the consequence of those introductions. And if good things happen when those species are removed from landscapes, then that's our responsibility as hard as it is, Brendan. And I don't, uh, I think it's always good to have um, the, the, you know, the, the fire in your belly and and the test each time to ask whether we have to do this uh, um, this extermination. Um, I, I value people who who hold a fire to our belly and make sure that we make those choices wisely and humanely. Um, but geez, I would I would hate for that to go too far and for animals to um to that are causing problems as invasive species, whether they be predators or whether they damage the landscape, whether they're not killed just on the basis of compassionate conservation. What do you think, Brendan? I think you've summed up the dilemma beautifully there, Mark. Um, it's a conversation that needs to be had ongoing and it's it's not an easy one as far as weighing up the pros and the cons um you know that with dealing and it's not and i think i think it goes on to other areas within if we stick to animals with with you know animal experimentation and and you know the debate on gee should we should we be should we be um testing products on um cancer therapies for instance on 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 animals and and if you're the person or that or you have a family member that that is going to benefit from um, a new drug that needs needs trials, for in instance, um, in in the laboratory, and, and animals will be laboratory animals are sacrificed for it. Then you struggle not to not to argue the the merit of that, even though even though we're um, we're ending up sacrificing animals for the for the for the human cause there. So I, I think it follows on into those sort of those sort of debates and. Um, philosophical arguments as well, Mark. So, no, it's 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 something that um, I think we both we both constantly wrestle with this type of thing. And um, yeah, I liked so. one uh, line in the article when where um, where one of the authors said, um, if I can just find it, um, that um, that. Um, we should that we should that that um, ethics behaving ethically sometimes means that you have to make a choice between two bad options. One is less bad than the other, um, and if you decide to kill, um, then you shouldn't just feel self righteous confidence. You should always, um, uh, you know, hold that loss um, dearly. Um, you shouldn't like the killings, and you should. Um, uh, 
consider the welfare of the animal that you're inflicting it on and um and uh yeah i i take that to heart i think um uh it is something that we should do but i i certainly um wouldn't resile from um from uh you know being involved in a program that made it better for our native animals in their own environment yes absolutely well the the sentence or the quote from this article that um i enjoyed mark was right down the very bottom there and it's a real real uh, a very australian sort of comment there um dingoes are quiet animals he says if you've got a dingo that has been with you for yonks they'll only make this noise if there is danger so um i love yonks um so it's a very Australian um, phrase there, Mark. And, and the other thing that made me laugh, um, or probably the only thing that made me laugh about this article, Mark, is the, I don't know whether you had it on the side, but there was, it has some advertisements um, for, other, for other websites and videos, et cetera, um, beside it. And the video down the bottom um, that, that I can link to um, with this article says, the horse with a penchant for painting. Um, um, so I don't think they sort of targeted that very well, Mark. Um, I don't know whether you saw that in your little um, down the bottom of your um, – I, I expect you're getting different advertisements. It probably says a lot about the sort of videos I watch if it's giving me a, a video, a, a link to a, a horse that paints. Um, it, how um, sort of tells you how superficial I am, doesn't it, Mark? Um, yeah, so we might leave it at that. My first news article – follows on beautifully from yours actually mark and it's about the queensland scientist who turns cane toads into cannibals and uh 15 years ago this particular um researcher has worked out that um it's professor robert capon um he needs a bit of extra funding um to help with his little toad busting um method and what he has he has a what does he call the mark um a a cane toad <laughs> smoothie that prompts cane toads or cane toad tadpoles to turn cannibalistic and to eat cane toad eggs. And um, he discovered that um, tadpoles do this even when the water's murky and um, that the tadpoles go and they're lured to eat their own eggs in shallow water. So he developed this... Um, and he thinks what it is, it's it sort of it resembles the smell of a, a dead cane toad. And for those of you from overseas, um, cane toads are a noxious species here in Australia that um, we're desperately trying to um, avoid the inevitable march of them across the Australian landscape, aren't we, Mark? Um, and what happens is, <coughs> excuse me, that since 2016 they've laid these baits and distributed them to a network of volunteers as tablets and they're called bufo tabs, um, and the volunteers put the tablets into traps in shallow waters and the tadpoles all swim in through the funnels because they think there's a huge pile of cane toad eggs in there and um, they've been catching lots and lots of um, cane toads and they think, or the tadpoles, and they think that they've caught the order of one million tadpoles um, using this method. So, yeah, I think that this um, story follows on quite nicely from your little or your your um, quite um, thought-provoking story about um, dealing with well, the animals, Mark. So, it's yeah. A good, it's, um, I've followed this um, bait story quite a bit and we've just had a, a, a news item in our news where um, in, Nor in Metford near Newcastle there's been um, cane toads uh, several cane toads um, turn up late, lately, and um, we've been careful because some of the, um, you know, we're going to start seeing dogs that have cane toad poisoning, a condition we don't get to see here in Newcastle. So that's been an eye-opener. But um, this uh, this is a relatively, from what I can understand, a relatively humane, um, you know, the, the tadpoles are um, drawn into a trap by the bait, um, in very, very large numbers. They're highly attracted to it and they can be um, quickly and, well, a quick death is probably better than a, any other slow death. And um, and they once they're all in the trap together, they can be um, um, 
they can be dispatched with some um, speed and and um, make sure they don't suffer. And it's been very effective, I understand, Brendan. So it does follow very neatly on the thoughts that I was having before. Yes, and I think um, they should be throwing some money at that particular researcher who needs a little bit more help. I think he has one part-time a postdoctoral student who's helping him out, um, but they want to expand it and um, refine it a little bit more. So, yeah, so that's my first story, Mark. What's well, I've got one um, that's from our one of our favourite sites, the Mother Nature Network, and it tells the story of um, researchers working in Sumatra um, when they spotted um, a... Uh, a lone female orangutan with an infant um, who was in the trees. And once the researcher was um, spotted, um, he was spotted by the, the mother orangutan, um, he waited for a couple of minutes before um, trying to, you know, get away and hide again so he could observe things. Um, and he waited for a little while, um, but the, normally what would happen is the female would sound an alarm and uh, nothing happened. She um, stopped what she was doing. She grabbed her infant. Um, she defecated, which in, is a sign of distress in uh, mother orangutans, and slowly started climbing much higher in the tree. Um, the amazing thing was that um, she was completely quiet Um but she then, 20 minutes later, sounded the usual alarm, the orangutan alarm, and she did that for more than an hour, um, which, you know, on average, orangutans, female orangutans will do that for six or seven minutes. Um, the interesting thing about this little anecdote is that um, some... Uh, some uh, orangutan experts are using it as evidence to suggest that um, that a delay um, of 20 minutes and then calling attention to danger um, is that um, is that she first of all clearly remembers that there was something dangerous happening but she was using the experience as a, a method of teaching and protecting her offspring. Um, and so it all points to like very, you know, we know orangutans are very, very close to humans, um, phylogenetically speaking. Um, and this high cognitive processing of stimulus and the general intelligence, um, their traits um, that... Uh, that um, the scientists suggest eventually uh, lead ultimately to the evolution of language. Um, so, so much can be inferred by just uh, some casual observations in the wild, Brendan. Yes. <laughs> um. I don't know what to say about it. I can tell you a, a, a personal. We, we, when we were in uh, Borneo, um, we did come across a mother orangutan with her baby, um, and it was a little bit of a surprise because they were both relatively low in, in a tree on a path that we're walking in one of the national forests. Um, she definitely made some alarming calls. Um, it was uh, um, uh, her surprise um, and my proximity um, uh, made for much more urgent responses than were observed in this story. But um, maybe she 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 probably <laughs> saw you in your budgie smugglers. She That's probably she what didn't was know happening, Mark, and that would cause which for great long arm date to drag up the tree to make sure they were safe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, no, it was a, a inter cute story. Um, um, the the. <sighs> Yeah, um, <laughs> I find it difficult this one to decide <laughs> whether, whether or not they're drawing drawing too. Yes, exactly. To, they're trying to infer too much um, from from a behaviour that they they witnessed in these animals. Then again, they they've been studying them for a hell of a lot longer than I have, um, which has only been five minutes with with the article. Um, so yes, um, but I always I'm always a little bit concerned about the over over um, analysing some of these things um, in with 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 behavioural research, Mark. Um, that that's that's, I that's love, sort of my I, what I, I, love what your I wanted to approach to state, data. Yeah. What's your next story? Oh, thank you. 
My next story is a real um, a low light, not a highlight. And this one, I, I thought of you when I saw this one, Mark. And it's about uh, the, the title is "Emotional Blackmail Contributes to High Vet Suicide Rate," and and it spoke about two different things. This was in um, uh, reported in in uh, mid January. Um, uh, veterinarians abandon the profession, um, and it talks about um, the suicide rate has still been high within veterinarians and. Um, that uh, talking about an emergency centre in Queensland um, that struggles to get veterinarians to work there, and I know we've spoken at at length, Mark, in previous podcasts, and and you always are quite surprised at the number of veterinary graduates um, or, or, or vets graduating here in Australia, and yet there's a there's a real um, dearth of um, vets um, um, that are um, applying for jobs, or, or um, and there's lots of jobs. Um, out there that aren't being filled um, and it ties in those two here and that um, it just puts more stress on the vets that are working um, if they're having to fill in the, these extra shifts and then it links in with the the ongoing high suicide rate um, in, in veterinarians, Mark. So it's nothing new, unfortunately. Um, it does talk a little bit about the, the emotional blackmail that some, thankfully, very few clients um, do um, with saying um, with veterinarians saying, "Look, you, how could you? How could you say you love animals? Um, why don't you treat my animal for free um, or at a discounted rate? All that sort of um, um, situation that I'm sure you've you've um, encountered several times, if not lots." Of times and and myself as well, and the stress that it puts us under. So, and I think that's where you know both of us are, are, are trying to give back where we where we help mentor new graduates, and and it's one of the things I really stress to to the new graduates or anybody I'm I'm trying to help out get into the workplace as a new veterinarian, and I really stress that they you know have a hobby um make sure you have that downtime and you have um a de-stress outside the vet because gee there's always that that um there's always that um tendency isn't there mark that you that you you never have enough hours in the day um even at work and when you get home you want to finish off the the cases or, or read up on the cases that you need to do the next day and and it's very important to schedule that time where, you, where you're not deliberately not I, doing any any vet and it is it's a um a thing that uh, really vets end up feeling guilty about they they feel those um responsibilities to the animals they see and the people they talk to um that um that they do need to put in um a huge amount of effort to maintain the high standard um and 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 it it is counterproductive if you don't um, create time away from work for other things um, and keep safe places so that um, work doesn't become all-consuming. It's a very easy thing for me to talk about, Brendan, but I don't I don't pretend for an instant that um, I'm not as vulnerable to it as anyone else. And uh, and yeah, I think um, if we can cultivate a profession that um, that. Uh, continues to do all the wonderful things it does um, but also encourages its uh, members to have that time away from work um, I think we will be a better profession yes I think you've taken it to the extreme though these days Mark you need to take some time at work rather than time away from work um, but good on you for um, um, having having all those holidays that you have Mark Good job there. Let's jump into our main topic, which is top 10 topical teeth tips. I was trying to throw in a couple of a couple more teas there, Mark, but um, I thought we'd you do, stop you do at get, you um, do, five you do get wound there. Up yeah. with so dental questions. tips. I, I um, yeah, I'd, lucky I've got my little um, pop filter on my um, um, microphone here, Mark, to stop me um, doing those little extra pops there. But um, I'm sure and you've, well, you've got the same microphone as me, haven't you? These days, is that correct? <laughs> yes. Um, no wonder you're sounding so so mellow there, Mark. Um, yeah. So top ten dental tips, and and we will concentrate 
predominantly on exotic pets and unusual pets, but we will talk a little bit about our our dogs and cats and our other species as well. And I'm going to take the first one, Mark, and that is number one, and not necessarily in order of importance, but just the one that I thought of first, Mark. Don't use nail clippers to trim the incisors of our little exotics, especially rabbits and our rodents. And uh, it's unfortunately still not rare for us to see as a referral or a second opinion case of a rabbit that the referring or the another veterinarian with with little experience with dealing with a rabbit or or a rodent a guinea pig or a or a rat or a mouse where they've they've taken the dog or the cat nail clippers mark and they've just gone chomp on those incisors to to try and trim them you know and um at some stage, two things are potentially going to happen. Um, one is that, um, that it'll just make the malocclusion even worse because they'll just grow out at a, at a worse angle after that and probably because we're causing little micro fractures and, and damage to the tooth roots. But also it's not rare at all to get to get um, longitudinal fractures then and you end up with this horribly um, bleeding gum and, and a very sore tooth and a, a very sore and, and painful patient there. No. So if you do want to trim those incisors, use a high-speed cutting disc. And some patient, patients, um, and I'm sure you, you'd say the same, Mark, you can manage to do that um, with, with just gentle but firm restraint. I'm using the high-speed um, IM3 dental unit is what we'd cut in disc which is what we'd use um but in the longer term the majority of these patients especially with the exotics um will be removing all those incisors because in the long term it's cheaper for the client rather and it's easier for the patient um on their stress levels because they're just not coming to the clinic every two to four to six weeks marks for a dental incisor trim because once you've removed those incisors if all goes to plan. You don't need to and do it the, ever again. The, um, the animals surprisingly cope exceptionally well. That's one of the questions that people frequently ask me. How are they going to cope without their incisors? They barely even notice them. I don't even know why they've evolved to have them, Brendan, because when you take them out, they cope really well. Yes. <clears throat> Yes, and you do. You know, the worst case with those ones would be some of them. I do have a few that struggle a little bit, and, and I'd be asking the clients to to chop up the um, vegetables, and I'll, I'll explain that to them by saying, "Look, those incisors, especially in the rabbit and 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 the guinea pig, is all they're really doing is roughly chopping up the food to pass it to those back cheek teeth, so they act like scissors." So get a pair of scissors or equivalent and just chop up the um, the long pieces of hay and the big, big, long veggie bits um, to, to help them with it, especially in that initial stage after we've removed those incisors. But in the long run, yeah, absolutely, a fair number of them. Um, you'd, um, you'd be surprised to, to know that they'd have their incisors removed because some of them cope amazingly well and, and, and manage to eat without any adjustment to their to their grass and veggie. And we're trying to keep this punchy, but I've got one quick question on the nail clipper uh, topic. Um, Do you think that those longitudinal fractures predispose rabbits and uh, other rodents to uh, tooth root abscesses? Do those cracks provide an avenue for bacteria to get more ready access to the tooth root, do you think, Brendan? Good question, Mark, and I don't know whether this is one of your loaded questions as usual, Um, but my answer would be um, not particularly. I mean, I I think I rarely see um, those those ones that develop tooth root abscesses just because of that abnormal um, um, clip in there, and I think that's that's a couple of things. Um, One, because they're so quick growing those teeth and and that those those teeth are structured differently um than the other the other mammals that um that that's probably why it happens no, no, do you no, see many no, of them it's often say yes the reason i ask is yeah. that i um, regularly mention it as part of my explanation but it's only really happened a couple of times that i've been able to draw that correlation yeah so well, there we go. We're in. We are in agreement there, Mark. Yeah, I, I really stress the point that, hey, what, why? But and and I must admit, I do have one client who still brings in her rabbit. She just, I gave up trying to convince her to to remove the incisors of her rabbit, and it is a five year old rabbit. 
or at least five years of age, and he comes in every three to four weeks for a for a two minute um, high speed um, burr of those incisors because she just does not want to remove those incisors. And I, I gave up after about six months of trying to convince in convincing her convince her um so yeah so he gets his little regular trim every two to three weeks but um i think most clients when they realize that hey even if we're not charging much for that routine in size of trim um when you add up that you have to do it every every two to four weeks or so um for the for the life of that rabbit it's um a lot more economical for the for the client's um wallet in order to um just remove them and it's a lot less stressful and and potentially painful if if something goes wrong with, with number two leads on well from What's number two mark it's my thought that um it's a way of communicating uh the 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 urgency sometimes with which we need to deal with dental issues to clients and you mentioned it uh um in passing in the the talk about the incisors and um but more specifically i wanted to make the equation between red inflamed gums and pain. Um, I think that lots of clients, first of all, don't look at the gums of their animals, whether they're dogs or cats or our exotic pets. They um, they very rarely lift a lip and, um, and have a look at the the um, gingiva adjacent to the teeth. Um, but when they do, um, they often don't... Uh, don't realise how important it is or don't draw the conclusion when they do look um, that uh, something doesn't look normal and it needs to be needs to have something done to it. So one of the communication points that I find um, uh, makes a difference, um, and I have no trouble in you know emphasizing it because those it, it's clear um, humans that have uh, significant gingivitis are really um, suffering some pain and particularly if it gets to the point where um, it reaches the periodontal ligament that inflammation really really hurts and um, and it's exactly the same for our animals and so um, our um, as you were talking about before our our attempts to convince people to um, move in the direction of of uh, corrective dental therapy um, whatever that may be um, uh, it's emphasized by the fact that those red gums are painful and if they're painful and we can stop them being red and angry um, then whatever we need to do to those teeth we should do yes red gums equals pain and and it's a great little technique of trying to um not i shouldn't say convince to explain to clients that yeah it is painful that dog cat whatever patient that's in front of you that has those red gums there, Mark, because they put up with it because they have no other choice, do they? So the, because the client will often turn around to me, I don't know whether they do it to you, Mark, and say, well, he's still eating his dog food okay. He, um, she's still eating her cat food okay. Um, so maybe it isn't painful. Well, what choice do they have? You know, they've got sore gums. Um, they're red. Um, a sore mouth, it's painful. Um, and once you explain it and say red gums equal pain, they more often than not and, and the animal in for the Well, for the, the good dental, thing is once it, it does goes go home pain-free. That's when they notice a difference, Brendan. Absolutely. Then they're running around like a little puppy or a kitten again, aren't they? And they think, gee, I wish I had done it earlier. So number three, Mark, is following on for my number one one there in that if you are removing upper and lower incisors in rabbits or rodents, don't just remove one arcade. Don't just remove the upper ones or don't just remove the lower ones. Why? Because the way they are wearing is not just chewing on the food items but it's also teeth grinding against teeth which is causing the, the wear there so if you only remove the lower incisors you will end up with a malocclusion and those upper incisors typically will start curling inwards and uh, into the gum level and vice versa so remove all four of them or if we have a rabbit mark we have those six and we have those two little peg teeth in the upper upper um 
upper quadrant there and the upper gums there um, that we need to remove as well. I always find, Mark, those peg teeth in rabbits are, are probably more, more fiddly to remove than the other four incisors. Do you, you know, uh, I think we both have a little bit of a, a uh, um, system whereby if we have a failure with those incisor removals, that we um, do the subsequent ones at some form of subsidised cost. And, and fortunately, it doesn't happen too often. But when it does, it's often the peg teeth that are the king-sized pain-in-the-butt ones. Yeah, they're so, they're so fiddly, aren't they? And I think I tend to remove the other four teeth, and then I think, oh, well, let's just rip out these um, peg teeth really quickly and I should be taking a little bit more time. Um, and when I slow down a bit with those peg teeth and just slowly break down the four sides of the, the little peg tooth and um, gently ease it out rather than trying to rip it out or pull it out, um, it's more likely to come out in its entirety. So that's number, number four. Three, what's number four? Let teeth do what they're supposed to do. Teeth were designed to chew, and so we should let our exotic pets take advantage of that. We should provide them with behavioural enrichment, which encourages them to chew. So many times I'm talking to my um, rabbit or rat clients, um, and they... Oh, point out that um, that uh, their pet is like gnawing at something it shouldn't be, and um, and causing damage to their furniture, or potentially even getting access to electrical cords. Um, and they bemoan the fact that they chew when that's an intrinsic part of their existence, and we should be providing them with um, branches or toys or um, whatever we can um, organise, uh, um, pine cones or whatever stimulates each individual animal to uh, exercise those teeth, um, we should be providing for them. Yes, and that follows on, well, my next one follows on to that, Mark, and that is reptiles have teeth um, and keep them clean. And when we're, we're talking about our, our lizards and our crocodilians and our snakes there, Mark, and um, clients often forget um, that they've got teeth in that mouth. And the classic there is bearded dragons, isn't it, Mark? They're very prone to dental disease. Um, so they need to chew as well. So making sure they're not being fed both inappropriate food as far as being too soft. And the classic there is things like banana and, and, and fruits, but also what's in the um, food items that making sure that they're getting food items that uh, um, are appropriate for them as far as um, um, calcium, vitamin D, those sorts of things, Mark. So that's number five, reptiles have teeth. And, and, and you're exactly sure right, Brendan. I love clean. that point because um, it certainly is, uh, um, as the number of pet bearded dragons has, <coughs> excuse me, grown, um, our uh, the number of cases where we've had to take the IM3 dental unit um, to the the uh, mouths of those lizards has increased as well. And, and people are often surprised when I talk about um, periodontal disease, um, uh, that gingivitis, the recession of gums about their lizards, they um, look at me like those words only apply to their dogs and cats and humans. Um, but um, but it's so true. We need to pull the gum back, have a look at those teeth and make sure we feed them properly and keep them clean. Which sort of, I feel a bit embarrassed yes. about this, Brendan, because we are talking about teeth, um, but you know I have to stick something in about birds. And, <laughs> and we have been talking about teeth. Um, uh, um, teeth and, and chew toys and reptiles and quality of food. And while birds don't, well, mo they only have a tooth momentarily when they're hatching out of the egg, um, they, uh, they definitely need um, uh, chew toys um, and activity and environmental behavioural enrichment. Otherwise, they will get into trouble. And interestingly enough, that trouble is... Not is in some parts parallel to what we see with animals that have teeth in that um, inappropriately worn beaks will become overgrown and excessively long and require um, a surgical procedure to return them to normal shape. And in some instances, the germinal epithelium 
grows excessively long in those long beaks and we can't return them perfectly to normal shape. And those excessively long beaks are painful because of the unusual forces that are involved. And finally, there's often a, a cascade effect where an unusual set of pressures in the beak leads to unusual pressures in the various joints that lever the bones of the upper and lower beak. Um, and so they can develop um pain in the uh, equivalent of the temporomandibular joint. Um, and these things all have an impact on quality of life. So even if they don't have teeth, Brendan, we should be treating them as if they need something to chew on. Good point, Mark. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you got birds in there somehow. Fantastic. Um Getting back to rabbits, <laughs> number seven is a little tip for vets who don't treat rabbits very often, and it's a, it's a generalisation, but it applies most of the time, doesn't it, Mark, in that if we see a young rabbit with incisor teeth issues, the chances are it is congenital dental disease because it hasn't been on the bad diet or whatever, whatever other causes um, we lump into the um, the acquired dental disease long enough um, to cause the um, incisor malocclusion. So I'm talking about rabbits that would be probably less than one year of age. Um, chances are, hopefully, that if we see incisor issue, it, it was it was born with those bad teeth. And if we remove those incisors, um, the rest of the teeth um, should be okay. But always, 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 when you see incisor issues, um, inspect the cheek teeth or the premolars and molars there, Mark. And the opposite applies. For older rabbits, think cheek teeth or acquired dental disease. If you see a client who brings in a rabbit that's, say, three, four, five years of age with severe incisor issues um, at that sort of age, chances are those incisor issues are secondary to the cheek teeth problems. Um, so it's sort of the and opposite. And a very good there, point too, Brendan. Um, th uh, while nothing is hard and fast, that is a uh, one that a rule that um, I do tend to be able to follow with some, you know, predictability. It's interesting because we see a, an increased number of those um, miniature lot breeds with very squashed in faces have congenital issues. Um, and if we remove those incisors when they're young, things tend to go pretty well. But um, in older rabbits of all sorts, uh, cheek teeth, acquired dental disease, it's a common um, occurrence that they precede the, the problems with the incisors. Um, my next one, Brendan, is once again nothing to do with rabbits. <laughs> you, you might think I was trying to avoid the uh, our long-eared friends, but um, I wanted to make the point that dental disease is very, very common in ferrets. Um, we definitely, uh, of all the exotic pets we get to see and uh, do dental work for, um, ferrets come second to rabbits. Um, we definitely see a huge amount of gingivitis and uh, periodontal disease um, in our ferrets, and they do definitely. Be, being the finicky eaters that they are, um, the, it has a big impact on their food intake. Um, they respond to the pain of gingivitis and periodontal disease. Um, and, and I think also... Because it can be a little bit hard to examine, you know, most ferrets don't stay still for very long at all. And certainly having uh, a look in their mouth is not always the easiest thing. But with a compliant owner, um, you can do the little um, scruff routine, um, suspend them by the scruff only for a few moments. And almost all ferrets will give you a big yawn for two or three seconds and if you're on the money and you have your light at the ready you can have a good look in there quickly and you'd be surprised how often you find problems with those teeth Brendan. Yes we see a lot of ferrets with dental disease and I think the very last point which you will do in a sec follows on really nicely from what you just mentioned about um, diet and disease. Um, so number nine which is my last of the top 10 or number nine of the 10 is don't forget that we can apply a lot of the same principles as, 
as we've sort of mentioned throughout this top 10 that we can that we do in in dogs and cats as we do in exotics so we can stage dental disease in exotics for instance there's some fantastic little dental charts actually that are freely available and i think they're originally developed by and i've gone blank one of the um vets in the uk mark do you have those um so there's a little dental chart for a rabbit um for a ferret and for a guinea pig and um i've literally gone blank who it is um but they are freely freely available um out there and we use those all the time um and we we chart the dental disease in the exotics and we we send home the little picture with a Lots of crosses on there um, for the ferrets. Of all those teeth, we've removed their mark um, and um, the client gets to take that home because we like to give them those little visual visual um, clues and, and, and diagrams to, to take home there. So, yeah, don't forget that just because it's an exotic or an unusual pet that we... We can apply a lot of the same principles we do with our other species. My That's final, final thought, thought Brendan, final thought, and yeah. I'm glad we've left this to last because it, uh, um, I think it, it's you know, it is very important, and it is a good message for us to leave um, in people's minds as the last thing. Whenever we have dental disease, when we can find a dental disease in that rabbit or ferret or um, we see the bearded dragon with um, inflamed red gums that have begun to recede, um, I want to emphasise that we've got to think about husbandry. We've got to think about diet first, second and third. Um, and um, and I think uh, that probably more than many other circumstances um, where the teeth are concerned, there's often predisposing problems with what the animals are eating. Um, and I liked you when we were talking about this, you mentioned to me that um, that while we focus on the teeth and then we focus on the diet, um, the third thing to always keep in mind are those uh, underlying diseases and particularly metabolic bone disease. Um, so uh, think diet first, second and third, um, and then make sure a good thorough physical exam and assessment for underlying disease. And that will set us up. Yes. And I think, and I, yeah. And I think a lot of vets forget that we do see metabolic bone disease as being a big factor in not just reptiles, Mark, because traditionally everybody thinks, oh, yeah, it's metabolic bone disease, calcium vitamin D problems. In an exotic pet, it will be a reptile, but we certainly see it in in the other species, including a lot of the a lot of the mammals. Mark and and and, um, and the classic there, I think, is the ferrets. A slightly off topic, but not really, um, is the not quite right ferret mark, and, and we see it, or I see a fair percentage of the ferrets, and we don't see a heap of ferrets, Mark, but a fair percentage of the ferrets that are not quite right those nqr ferrets that um, have multiple potential issues or, or something just not quite right with them um, and we fix the diet and the issues magically go away mark there so i think um, diet has such a huge part to play with all our unusual pets as we keep stressing all the time um, with them and, and yeah metabolic bone disease i think is a, a big factor in ferrets as it is with a lot of the other species i agree <laughs> Sorry for um, jumping in there. Prob um, were you about to say something there, Mark, or no? Apart from I agree, <laughs> but oh, I'm sure it would be. Um, and and you're probably not going to talk to me for the rest of the week, are you, Mark? So, on that point, we'll talk to you all next week. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.